I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and it is such a joy to be joined today by Kristen Radke. She's the author of the graphic nonfiction book, Imagine Wanting Only This, the recipient of a 2019 Whiting Creative Nonfiction Grant. Radke is the art director and deputy publisher of The Believer. And Kristen, you wrote and drew a beautiful, intricate new book about loneliness called Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness. So tell me why loneliness? <laughs> I, I don't really know. Like, I feel like writers often have like this sort of origin story for a project. And I don't actually know what, it, I mean, I know that I started writing about loneliness when I started drawing loneliness in like 2015 and 2016, this project started where I was just drawing people alone in public in like crowded public settings. But I thought that was sort of the extent of the project. But when I, when my first book got reviewed, a bunch of, a bunch of reviewers were talking about how I was grappling, grappling with isolation and loneliness in the book. And I didn't really ever think about that. Like that was never a theme that I thought I was exploring at all. And I think, I think that's also, I think that's really common for me is that I circle around and I circle around things for mm -hmm. a really long time. And I don't realize that all of these, what I think are totally unrelated projects are actually sort of investigating the same thing. So from there, I, from that, from that illustrated series that I did, I just started, you know, it was during the 2016 election. It was an extremely lonely time for a lot of people. And I just felt like a little bit you know, pulled away from reality and started thinking about why I was feeling so badly, even though I had a pretty good, you know, circle of friends. So I started researching loneliness and um, it was much worse than I thought. I didn't, I didn't really understand the dangers of loneliness. Yeah. I, I feel like even I um, reading in the book kind of connected the dots in ways that I hadn't really considered before, because it seems like just about everything is rooted in some form of loneliness or distrust or isolation. 
Totally. Like our, when you, when you look at, I mean, I mentioned the election, but when you look at our sort of our political divides, so much of that is about, you know, there's like that cliche of like, people are afraid of things they don't understand, but it's like sort of like people are afraid of things they don't have access to, or they think that they're not like a part of, or they feel, you know, like, like biologically when we, when we feel uh, separate or isolated from other people, we just like, we're just trained to to experience that as a threat to, because that's how, you know, in evolution, like we were supposed to be afraid of people we didn't know because they might like steal our food. Right. And so I like there, that's actually like a biological thing we need to override, I think, um, which is sort of like, to me, one of the arguments of the book, but I think it, you know, it really is the root of so much of our problem is like, we, it's like a paranoia. After the emotionally draining year we all endured in 2020, there seemed to be positive things on the horizon in 2021. It's time to take what we learned in 2020 and start heading in a new direction. That's why instead of just celebrating a month of mental health awareness, it should be our priority all year long. Take the first step with online therapy. I don't know where I would have been without my online therapist this year. And I know that my husband feels the same about me and my therapist. Um, so, so thank you. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform that has thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and more. Your therapist can help you set and achieve your goals. Talkspace is a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. Instead of waiting for an appointment, you can send unlimited messages to your therapist 24-7 and then engage with you daily, five days a week. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use the code MARISREVIEW to get $100 off of your first month and show your support for the show. That's MARISREVIEW and Talkspace.com. So in this book, you, you've done so much research, and I love how the scientists and philosophers and artists you study become part of the narrative because this is a, a, a graphic book. You mean uh, like, because I draw them? Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. Talk yeah. about that. I mean, it's fun. So this book is different than other projects I've worked on in that it's not in traditional panels. Like it's not a traditional comic. It's like an illustrated essay. Some, I don't know. Um, sure. I don't know what I would call it, but it's sort of like more organic shapes and the images sort of bleed into each other but it get, I didn't know I couldn't have made this book in panels because it's not narrative right. like it's not like I, I don't have like a character walking from one room to the other and I can draw that like rarely do I even have a scene in the book so um the, the form just kind of made sense to me in that way and then it was it was sort of just like I like being able to do research in multiple areas like it's it's cool to be able to look through archives and find images that suddenly you realize are really related to the arguments you're making and like, you know, image is another language in itself. So it was another opportunity, I think, then to communicate an idea. Yeah. Um, and of course, uh, I feel like it's a terrible cliche of our era right now to even talk about the timing being uncanny. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Kristen, you have to admit, um, you could not have predicted the pandemic and yeah. what, how it would isolate all of us yeah I mean I okay so first of all like loneliness is, is supposedly going to be classified as an epidemic by 2030 New, uh 
America is not the worst country in terms of loneliness, but it's up there. Basically, like the wealth, the wealthier our country, the more isolated mm. people are because we we put spaces between each other as sort of like this mark of success or something like that. Like, you know, I mean, like a, a, the fence is sort of part of the formula of the American right. dream. You know, it's right. about dividing ourselves from one another, which is really stupid. And um, so, I mean, it's a, it's a huge problem. So when I was thinking about, you know, it felt very timely to me always because it's this emergency. And like, you know, the former US Surgeon General has called it one of America's most pressing health risks. But we didn't really talk that much about loneliness. Like it was like an embarrassing sort of thing. And then the pandemic hit and like everyone was like, I'm so lonely, I'm going to die, this is horrible. But the, the, the loneliness of the pandemic feels very different to me than hmm. chronic loneliness. Like I feel like I'm, you know, I, I, of course there's a connection between the pandemic and, and loneliness for a lot of people, the pandemic was the loneliest they've ever felt, you know, it's the, the biggest period of loneliness of their lives. But there's one, there's a difference between like a sort of situational, like this is imposed on everyone. And like, I don't know how to feel connected to my community for my entire life. Or, you know, like everyone I love has died because I'm, you know, older or something like that. Or like, I've been uh, excommunicated from my family. Like there's all of these things that are so different. And so like, I feel like this the pandemic, I hope reminds us that, hey, this feels terrible because we need to stop. We need to fix it. Like this is, it's like our bodies like sending an alarm to us saying we need to find one another. But that's very different than sort of like the slow da damage that loneliness and isolation does to our, to our bodies and our, our brains um, and like our ability to fight disease and make connections with each other. Yeah. The, um, you cite a study that um, during the AIDS crisis, closeted gay men were more likely to, to die. More yeah, quickly. like they died much more quickly. So I talked to this um, amazing doctor, his name is Dr. Stephen Cole, and he was studying um, during the 80s and 90s, he was studying gay men who tested positive for HIV and found that those who were closeted died much sooner than those who had who were not, who were out. And he attributed that at the time to like stress and anxiety. And like, um, you know, it's, it's like you have this added burden of a secret on top of already dealing with this like deadly disease. But um, so he kind of chalked it up to that and was done. I mean, like there was, you know, like in the nineties, I think they started saying like stress is the new smoking and, the, and yeah. you know, yeah. like that became the whole thing of like stress is going to kill you, which it will. Sure. But I think often, <laughs> often like we conflate, like we use stress as an umbrella, the same way we use depression as an umbrella for a lot of factors. Yes. I think stress is related to that. And often people who are really stressed are, are really isolated because they're working so hard and they're removed from each other. But so basically, uh, John, Dr. John Cassiopo, who is sort of like considered the expert on loneliness, he died a few years ago, reached out to Dr. Stephen Cole after he read his studies and asked him, Hey, can you come study loneliness with me? And the Dr. Cole who'd studied HIV patients was like, loneliness who cares like this is what a silly stupid sort of factor to test for and then was completely shocked when he studied um sort of the biological samples of people who were classified as lonely and discovered like it's just it wreaks total havoc in your body you're likely to die significantly sooner people in his study in the studies who cla were classified as loneliness were more likely to be dead by the time the study was over than those who were socially fulfilled Oof. and take me through Obviously, we're not the only, um, America is not the only country of lonely people, but tell me what makes America specifically vulnerable. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, all of this is, is speculation. Like I'm, yeah. from my, from my perspective, I would say it's sort of an emphasis on American individualism. Like we it's like the sort of like pull yourself up, you know, you're, uh, you're responsible for yourself. Like the American, so even like this whole premise of the American dream, like you must make something of, of yourself and it's all focused on like, I did this alone, which is never true. And yeah, I mean, if you even look back at, you know, I talk about cowboys a lot in the yeah. book and like, there's this sort of like outsider mentality, even in our politics, it's sort of like coming in to like drain the swamp, whatever, like this, it's sort of like uh, the underdog outsider story is very American. And that is about someone who's like fighting the system, who's, al- who's alone. And that's like heroic, which is flawed in that like cowboys didn't really exist. Like that was, a, it's a total myth, you know, that they existed in that same way. And as anyone knows who's ever accomplished anything, you need a community of people to do that. And we rely on we rely on each other to survive. And I think that we forget that when we live in a world where like we can just like go to the grocery store, we're not growing all our own food. And like it's made by all these people who are completely invisible to you and mm-hmm. and or you can get them delivered to your door and you seem it feels very self-sufficient, but that's not self-sufficiency. You're like one member of a of a whole, you know, web that's that's keeping everybody alive. So I think that's really problematic. Yeah. And then from Cowboys, you kind of, you trace even just the anti-heroes that we mm-hmm. um, love to watch on TV. I mean, Don Draper is Don Draper. the man. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's just, big. Don Draper is just a cowboy. I mean, truly. Yeah. Like there's so many, there's so many characters that are like that. Um, and I, there, it's a very masculine idea. Like we, I mean, sure we had like Mayor of Easttown you know, there are exceptions, but then that's sort of like this, that, you know, that's become a sort of still like, sort of like a masculine arc, a masculine feminine archetype too, in the same way. But she's, I mean, like Mare is also a cowboy and she's, and she's isolated and alone, but as anyone who watches the show knows, she actually needed her community in order to. You sure did. <laughs> that hug from Laura at the end. Let me tell exactly. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe Don Draper should have Thought more <laughs> with HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. And that's why it's America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and grocery store trips, so you can enjoy cooking and get to dinner on the table in about 30 minutes or less. HelloFresh offers 25 plus recipes to choose from each week, from vegetarian meals to craft burgers and extra special gourmet options. There's something for everyone to enjoy with all recipes designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. In my household, my husband is the one who makes dinner. I know I'm lucky. And um, it's such a joy to get HelloFresh delivered and have all of the ingredients measured out and ready to be cooked. Uh, Our favorite is the pork chop with root vegetables and Brussels sprouts. It's delicious and it works really well for my low carb diet because I'm diabetic. Uh, So really something for everyone. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MarisReview12 and use code MarisReview12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash MarisReview12. Use code MarisReview12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. Tell me about the journey of the book 
Um, you mentioned that there's no straight narrative, but you do interweave these threads really well, like the personal and the scientific and the philosophical and pop culture. Tell me about that. So the or structure for me is like always one of the last things I figure out on any project, particularly something that's long, like a book. And I feel like I waste so much time in the beginning being like this, this, I must know like what comes first and what comes second and what comes third, which is, you know, silly because the book the book like only makes sense when it's being, when it's written, you know? So I, I ended up dividing it into multiple chapters, like listen, uh, they have titles like listen, watch, click, touch. And it's just about like these, these ways in which we connect or fail to connect. But I, that was a pretty late organizing principle and the like sort of the weaving in between the personal and the sort of outward facing, you know, that, that took, a, that took a pretty big, great deal of time to figure out how th that might work together and like on early readings I didn't have much of myself in it at all and then I had a couple of friends read it and they were like where are you like why are you doing this research like what's the point like why are you interested in this and I think I I often resist putting myself like even my first book which was you know uh, they called it a memoir like I didn't the first the first draft of that book that went on a proposal really wasn't I wasn't in it much at all and I think that it is something that readers want. Like they want to understand like who's guiding them through this information. So it's something I resist, but then ultimately like, you know, the editors are right when they, when they ask for, for more of the writer. But I think I, I don't know that I was resistant to talk about my own loneliness out of some sort of like embarrassment or anything other than the fact that I just thought that my own experience was so less interesting, so much less interesting than like, you know, these like amazing thinkers and scientists, um, and all of these discoveries. Like, I think I got really stuck in the science and I just wanted to be like, look at this crazy fact. Like everyone look at this, you know, but you need to do a little more work than that. One of the things that you do to, to illustrate the science a little bit more um, that I loved is just talking to friends and colleagues and talking about their most lonely times. Tell me, tell me about that. Cause I love that section. Thanks. Yeah. That was really early in the project. So I did this, I, it was actually a short, it started as a short piece I did for the Atlantic. And I remember the Atlantic saying, is this a standalone piece or is it part of a book? And I genuinely said, it's, it's not part of the book and it wasn't. And then over time it became, it. basically I just asked people, I started asking friends, what's the loneliest you've ever felt? Because I noticed when I, when people were like, you know, what are you working on? And we'd be like over drinks and I'd be like, oh, about loneliness. And almost every time someone would be like, let me tell you about this time I was so lonely. And it was, the stories were so beautiful and so moving and so specific. And I was very surprised by that. You know, like if someone said, you know, if you say like, what's the, you know, what's the hardest you've ever worked or what's the saddest you've ever been? Or like, what's the time you work out your heart broken? Someone would be like, someone might be like, well, you know, Jeremy was a real asshole, you know, but like, there might not be like this sort of immediate emotional response, yeah. but with the loneliness, it's like, someone was like, I was sitting on a couch, the doorbell rang. I thought it was for me. And it was for someone, you know, like, and it's like sort of this hype and, and I could just sort of feel that. So I started, I think I actually just went to Twitter and I, or Facebook or something. This is back when I still used Facebook. And I, um, I asked like, what's the loneliest you've ever felt? And I just got this outpouring of responses and, and they were so, moving. And I really, what I think is really interesting is how um, small those moments can be. Like it can be like this very small moment within a sort of greater time of isolation. And of course, then there were some really extreme examples, like, you know, being a refugee or being, um, you know, disowned by your family. How do you portray loneliness um, in your drawing? 
have you have you have you figured out anything about having written about loneliness or drawing about loneliness I mean that's that's one of the challenges is like I at a certain moment I was like I can't keep drawing like a person alone in a room or like I can't draw a person alone on the subway again or like alone on a park bench like there is sort of that impulse that I have to just be like loneliness is a person who's alone which actually isn't true like solitude right right very different but uh I don't know. Like, it's sort of this thing where I just, you know, you have whole, I think it's just like with writing where you have, it's with any kind of art where you just have these holes that slowly you figure out how to fill. And you're like, well, I have no idea what I'm going to draw there. And then you just look at it enough and you reread it enough and you think about it enough. And suddenly you're like, of course it has to be this. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Like, I think, I don't, I don't know. I don't even know how I would answer that because I just, did it <laughs> okay just, you know like certainly there's like there's like color you know like color is I spoke I talked about image being its own language and color yeah. is its own language and this is the first book I've written I've made in color and it was like absolute torture um I mean torture is torture but in terms of in terms of art this was a this was a drag you know it was hard I've never I because I've never worked in it before and I didn't understand you know I mean it's like you have one color on the left and you think you understand what that color is and then you put a color next to it on the right and that color is totally different and it's communicating something totally different and everything it just goes into utter chaos so i think that is one thing i tried to work on too is like okay a more limited monochrome palette even if i'm working like in vivid colors in a section most of the colors are pretty muted but if even if i'm working in like you know like peaches and oranges like if i keep them to me like loneliness is about everything feeling sort of the same so I tried to kind of communicate that in the in the color. Yeah, and and in the section called "Click," of course, we talk about how the internet has or hasn't changed our our state of loneliness. Yeah. And I, I I appreciate that that you write that it's kind of a scapegoat. Yeah, I think it totally. Do you agree with that? I I think so too. I think so too. Thanks. Okay, good. I, um, <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. No. Um. You. The the book is named um for one of the terms from your dad's mm-hmm. ham radio. Yeah. And I feel like this is the logical next step in the ham radio. Like just. Yeah. Into the void. Is anyone out there? Exactly. Yeah. So a CQ call letter CQ. Uh, is like a on ham radio when if you're like reaching out you're it it just means is there anybody out there so you just go cq 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 and morse code or now sometimes people use their voices um it, for those people who still use ham radio because it is sort of like this still like this niche club thing mm-hmm. but um you know and that to me felt very similar so like my dad when he was a kid you know, he, he was like a, a sort of young adolescent like 11 12 13 would call out on ham radio like he would stay up all night to do this and it, that seemed to me so similar to how I was when I was like 12 and the internet was just becoming a thing. And I was like on chat rooms talking to totally lunatic strangers or like a nice 12 year old girl in New Zealand, you know, <laughs> like there was, you know, there was just like these, it was, what is that if not sort of like a, a, a desire to make connection, but is that different than, you know, like chain, remember like chain mail and you would like write letters in the mail That's- yeah strangers like that's the same thing it's just it's maybe easier now on the internet like and it looks more obvious mm-hmm. but like I I do I mean obviously I think the internet has all kinds of problems it's yeah. made a lot of things very bad yeah but I, I don't think that we can we can sort of diagnose it as the cause of of our sort of state of isolation like you know that one of the things I cite in the book that I just thought was hilarious was that when the 
um, telephone was invented, the New York Times published this like scathing editorial about it saying that, I think it was something like, we will soon be nothing but transparent heaps of jelly to each other or, <laughs> or jelly or goo. I mean, it was something incredible. Yeah. And it was this idea of like, oh, like this will completely ruin our ability to communicate, which is actually not true at all. You know, it, it allowed us to stay in touch with people more than we maybe would have previously. Right. And, and, and you mentioned that any big technological breakthrough, there, there is that kind of globs of jelly warning. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> the phone. Yeah, the phone, the telegram, the radio. The radio was like going to be the end of everything. Like we were going to just be distracted all the time, you know, which now the radio is just the quaintest, most lovely, wonderful thing. Yeah. I mentioned this before we started um, recording, but. Kristen, you got my like emotional uh, trigger point <laughs> with your discussion of, um, why am I, sorry about that. Harry Harlow. Harry Harlow. Harry I wanted Harlow. to say Maslow, it wasn't Maslow. <laughs> about Harry Harlow and his studies on monkeys. Yeah. So this was a rabbit hole I did not anticipate going down at all. So, and my editor was like, you cannot publish this. This is too upsetting. And, and I, oh, upsetting. <laughs> it's really upsetting. Um, so basically Harry Harlow very famously studied um, maternal bonds. He did what's called the monkey mother study. If you took psych in high school, you learned about it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's basically baby rhesus monkeys were separated from their mothers right after their mothers gave birth. And they were put in sort of like these isolation chambers with um, two inanimate fake sort of surrogate mothers. One was made of wire and that one dispensed milk and the other one was made of cloth and it didn't provide anything. And the goal of the study was to demonstrate that as at the time, the sort of common understanding was that babies love their mothers just because they've provided food. And so they were like, look, if this is true, then the, the monkey will prefer this like wire mother who dispenses milk um, versus the cloth mother who doesn't give them anything, which turned out to be the opposite um, case. Like they clung to the cloth mother, like they like loved it. They would like stroke its face, you know, it's like devastating. But uh so Harry sort of proved this. It was it was meant to counteract the argument at the time that um, like mothers shouldn't be close to their kids or or they, or they shouldn't be coddled or they shouldn't be held too often, you know, for fears of disease and sort of like making kids soft and um, and too dependent. Like everyone was very afraid of like babies being dependent on their mothers and like this sort of weird, <laughs> it's like yeah. an evolutionary term. Yeah, but... yeah. <laughs> So, but then Harry sort of, you know, Harry Harlow sort of became like deranged as he started studying this, like his studies got more and more intense. Like he was like, okay, I've demonstrated that love is real or that attachment is real, but can I demonstrate that love is real? And he was very obsessed with the idea of love, which at the time was sort of a dirty word in science that you would, mm. uh, people would say the word proximity instead of love. Mm. And um, so, so when you think of that, when you think someone's trying to prove that love is real, you think he's probably a pretty great guy. Like he, you know, he's probably like this very sort of like altruistic, giving, kind, generous person, which yeah. was the opposite, <laughs> uh, the absolute opposite. I mean, he really turned into sort of like a cliched mad scientist. Like he started to, um, he started to isolate monkeys for more than a year. He started to, uh, and they, those monkeys just, they, the scientists used the word obliterated to discuss how they, um, they were completely incapable of interacting with each other. When they were put back in with the rest of their colony, the colony immediately tried to kill them because they were like, that something was clearly wrong with those monkeys. They would um, isolate their mo the mothers from birth to when they were able to give birth to their own monkey 
baby, um, but they, because they'd been isolated for so long, they weren't able to mate. So then they built a device called a rape rack in which they- um, Rape rack. Rape rack, which is what they called it. And, or what Harry called it, his his colleagues tried to uh, caution him against publishing that. (laughs) Um, And then like those, so that after those monkeys were, with child when they had the baby, they didn't know how to care for the baby. So they would like chew off the hands and feet of the monkeys and, or like crush the baby's skull in their teeth. Like it was, it was horrific. And he, he sort of just like kept down this path. And what was happening simultaneously was that he was getting more and more depressed. Like he, he had a lot of electroshock therapy. He had, um, a, a, his first wife ended up leaving because he was so detached. He married another woman when that woman died he went back to his first wife and like convinced her to marry him again. Um, like he was pathologically incapable of being alone, but also really pathologically incapable of like demonstrating love. And yet he is one of the uh, biggest advocates. Yeah. Uh, he's why babies get hugged now. Exactly, totally. Yeah, I mean, he really did change the, the shape of the way that we, love one another and the way that we raise our children. So I did try to like really reconcile with that. And I, and I also think like he, he's an, he maybe he was a monster, but he was also a very interesting monster. And I think there's like no such thing as an uncomplex villain for the most part. And I do, so I, I tried to approach him with empathy and sort of imagine that maybe he was driven by some greater good, um, which is not to give him any uh, a pass for any of his behavior at all. I mean, he was also like an absolute wildly wild misogynist. He was, um, like both of his wives were brilliant scientists who gave up their careers for him. And he, he talked in an interview about how like his wife knew it was better to marry a man and give up a job than to hold a job and not marry a man. And that his wives were too smart to get sucked up into women's lib. I mean, he was horrible. He was truly horrible, but I'm, but I'm also interested in like, what does it mean to render, to lovingly render people that we find despicable? Yeah. Um, and that's a good segue into, you, you talk about Hannah Arendt and how loneliness is such a key factor in, in, in so many, uh, devastating political ideologies. Um, or even that, of course, anytime there's a white mass shooter, they're a loner. Yeah. Like all the headlines are like, he was a loner. He, uh, he was unloved. Women didn't like him, you know, uh, like that, that becomes like the overarching narrative, which I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that, um, it's better for us to imagine that someone who does harm to our community is not a part of our community. And I think that's when you look at things like, you know, um, Islamophobia after nine 11, stuff like that. Like that seems to me so transparently exactly the same. It's the same. It's sort of a different application of the same fallacy. Yes. Um, and part two of that is that uh, often, sometimes those people were loners, but that also isn't the re- like we are, we don't we don't shoot people because we're alone. You know, it's a sort of paranoia that comes out. Like paranoia is really the side. Like a, there was a scientist who studied a behavioral psychologist who studied the who like read all the journals and blogs and manifestos of mass shooters and then compared the sort of what they wrote about in their journals to people who knew them, like people who went to high school with them. And their their um, descriptions of what happened were just completely separate. Like they were just absolute opposite of one another. And a lot of times the people, like people who became mass shooters weren't actually isolated. They just perceived isolation. Like they sort of imagined rejection before rejection took place, which is a byproduct of chronic loneliness. So 
you know, I mean, I, I, when I think about things like gun violence, like why does someone want a gun? It's because they're, they feel threatened by someone who's maybe like, there are of course a million reasons why someone might choose to purchase a gun. But I think often when we see like after uh, elections, when there's like a search to buy guns or something like that, it's like, oh, this other side is going to come after me. Mm-hmm. And it's people that they don't interact with on the day to day. Like there's a reason that more rural communities are also hyper-conservative and kind of cling to their guns. It's sort of a threat of people that they really never interacted with at all. And this hyper-vigilance is, I, I didn't realize that that was something that came out of loneliness, which yeah. is so interesting. Yeah, it's like, so basically like we have, okay, so like if if like you and I were in a cave as cave people and like you went off to find to find food and I was alone and I was like protecting like the little children in our cave. And I, so I was like, oh shoot, Maris is gone. I'm alone. I got to figure this out. Like I enter a state of hypervigilance where I'm like, okay, there's this bear. How am I going to figure this out? And like, I have all these hormones flooding my body and all these stress hormones. And, but then you come back, the bear goes away and I'm like, whew, okay. And like the cortisol goes down. Like I feel relaxed, but like, if you stay if you, like, because our lives are so like, you know, we work in cubicles separate from one another. Now we work from home separate from one another. You know, we feel very removed. Like we basically stay in that sort of hypervigilant state for too long. And then kind of that also impedes our ability to make relationships at all. Like, so like if Maris goes past my cave and I've been alone for too long, I'll be like, Maris is, I got to get rid of this Maris person. The bear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about Casey Kasem's song dedications. Oh yeah, Casey Kasem. And, and about how we can maybe ameliorate some of this chronic loneliness. Yeah, so I, as a kid, you know, I, I, this, that happened, I wrote that, at the, that was the, it's the epilogue to the book. I talk about Casey Kasem's top 40 countdown and his long distance dedications. And I didn't really think, like I'd always, as I was writing the book, I remembered long distance dedications and tried to find some audio clips, which are very hard to find. If you want to find radio clips from before the internet, it's like tough. Interesting. Um, but I was, you know, I remember them meaning so much to me when I was a kid. And then I, I sort of realized I had this, I also had this radio connection in the same way that I'd sort of romanticized my dad's yeah. connection to the radio, but I was doing the same thing. You know, I might not have been reaching out, but in a way, like listening is also a form of reaching out. And I, I was so moved at the time by the long distance dedications, which were just where people would write to Casey, like this, this letter about, you know, someone who died, someone who was far away, someone who they were estranged from and asked Casey to play them a specific song. And I started thinking about that again. And, and what a lovely idea that was sort of like a Craigslist misconnections kind yeah. of you know, <laughs> like feeling. And, you know, like, what were people looking for when they were doing that? You know, there is like, you know, it's like, I guess during drive time radio, you could always like call in and request a song for like your girlfriend or whatever. Mm-hmm. But this felt to me so vulnerable. Yeah. Like, you know, it was just like, it was just like, sort of like, you know, bleeding in front of everyone in front of millions of people on the radio. It was just like a very beautiful moving thing. Um, and, and I don't know, like, I, I want us to do more stuff like that. Like, I want us to also not have to do that because we're, we're, we're not estranged from one another. Right. But I like, I think like the jet, we have to, I think one of the problems when you were talking about hypervigilance is that you get into this state where you are no longer willing to, ex- or you're no longer open to experiencing new relationships. And I think anyone who's had like a, a, a friend who's been really lonely and who's had a lot of things go wrong in their interpersonal relationships, I think can probably relate to 
observing someone and how painful that can be to watch that happen. And it does kind of create a kind of loneliness in you then. It's like when your friend is, when your friend like can't, can't be soothed and you know, you, you, you find it feel the impulse to stop reaching out because it's just, it's exhausting and it's hard and it's painful. So I think we have to find a way to a stop getting to that point, which is about constantly reaching out to each other. Um, even when you don't feel like you want to and B when you get to that point, really addressing and saying, this is the thing I need to deal with. And loneliness isn't necessarily about like, I don't have friends or I don't have a, you know, I don't have a good family or even like, I don't have a partner. It's just, it's just like, it means, it just means that something's missing and you just have to figure out what that is. Yeah. I I think um, the the idea being lonely in a crowded subway is, is such an easy image to understand too. Yeah. Um, And like, you know, like new moms often I talk about how big it's like the wellness experience of their life. And it's like, you know, that should, you know, on, from a sort of a bird's eye view, shouldn't that be when you feel more connected than ever, you know, like you literally have this, this, you know, this tiny thing that's depending on you for everything, but that's a very isolating, upsetting thing for, for, you know, a lot of times. And so I think it's just about sort of recasting our ideas of what we think loneliness is. I think that's really an important important part. Kristen, thank you so much. This has been illuminating. Um, Before we go, Mm -hmm. do you have any books you would like to recommend? Yes, I do. I will say that um, my dear friend, Rachel Yoder, has her first novel coming out called Night Bitch in July. The Loneliness of Motherhood. Yes, (laughs) totally about the loneliness of motherhood. And you should read that immediately. Um, It's beautiful. And then um, for graphic books, I um, really loved the book uh, Dancing After 10. Amazing. Thank you so much, Kristen. Thank you, Maris. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.